Welcome to the Digital Edge with Sharon Nelson and Jim Calloway. Your hosts, both legal technologists, authors, and lecturers, invite industry professionals to discuss a new topic related to lawyers and technology. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 96th edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. And I'm Jim Calloway, director of the Oklahoma Bar Association's Management Assistance Program. Today, our topic is the future of the professions, an interview with Richard and Daniel Suskind. Before we get started, we'd like to thank our sponsors. CloudMask offers cost-effective and efficient data encryption for law firms, whether large or small, in Google Apps, Office 365, and other cloud solutions. Sign up now for your 60-day free account at cloudmask.com. We also thank ServeNow, a nationwide network of trusted pre-screened process servers. Work with the most professional process servers who have experience with high-volume serves, embrace technology, and understand the litigation process. Visit servenow.com to learn more. We are happy to welcome as our guests Richard and Daniel Suskind. They are the father and son authors of the new book, The Future of the Professions, just published by the Oxford University Press. Professor Richard Suskin is an author, speaker, and independent advisor to international professional firms and national governments. He is president of the Society for Computers and the Law, IT advisor to the Lord Chief Justice of England, and chair of the advisory board of Oxford Internet Institute. His books include the bestsellers, The End of Lawyers, and Tomorrow's Lawyers, which many of our listeners are familiar with. Daniel Suskin is a lecturer in economics at Balliol College, Oxford, where he researches and teaches, and from where he has two degrees in economics. He was a Kennedy Scholar at Harvard University. Previously, he worked for the British government in the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit in the 10 Downey Street, and as a senior policy advisor at the Cabinet Office. Thanks for joining us today, Richard and Daniel. Thank you for involving us. It's a great pleasure to be here with you. Thank you very much. It's, it's great to be with you. Well, Richard, I have enjoyed, indeed I have devoured all of your books. How did you come to write this particular book, Going Beyond the Legal Profession to All Professions, and how did you come to write the book with your son, Daniel? As you know, Sharon, I've been writing and thinking about the future of the legal profession for about 34 years now. And as a speaker, it has interested me often that after my talks, perhaps a stray architect or a stray doctor has been in the audience and has come up to me afterwards and said, you know, Richard, what you're saying is not just about law, it's applying in our professions too. And that got me thinking that there are broader issues going on. And at the same time, Daniel, uh, my son, he was working at 10 Downing Street in the, the policy unit at the Prime Minister's office, and he was working in justice policy and in education policy and in health policy and looking at the impact of technology. And as we come to discuss our own experiences, we thought that technology was really playing a fundamental role, not just in changing the way that professions work, but in how we share expertise in society. So we thought this was a subject worthy of a considerable investigation. And so we set off on this journey together, a, a privilege to be doing so with my son. Uh, we undertook research, we spoke to professionals right across the world, and we put our heads together and we produced the book. Daniel, our audience is the legal profession, and so we're going to be asking you questions from their point of view. One of the most interesting concepts in the book references the grand bargain, 
and suggests that lawyers have failed in keeping their part of the bargain. Would you please explain what the grand bargain is and how you think lawyers have failed to keep that bargain? So the, the, grand, the grand bargain is, is an arrangement under which the professions, and this includes the legal profession, often to the exclusion of others, and this exclusivity is key, they're asked to provide certain services to the public. So only doctors can provide certain types of medical advice, only lawyers can provide certain types of legal advice, and so on across the professions. And in return for this exclusivity, you know, we, ex- we society expect that the professions will make their knowledge, their experience, their skills, their know-how, and the term we use in the book for this bundle of things is their practical expertise. They'll make their practical expertise available in a way that's affordable, accessible, and reliable. Now, of course, the details of the grand bargain vary across the different professions, uh, and you can think of it as what a political theorist might call a social contract. It's not a traditional contract drafted by lawyers it hasn't been reduced to writing or signed. Its terms haven't been exhaustively articulated. And one way to think about the grand bargain is as a metaphor you know, for this arrangement that we have in place between the professions and society. And the central idea is that the professions are granted exclusivity. And in return for that exclusivity, there's this expectation that they'll make their practical expertise available in an affordable, accessible way, as I said before. So that's, that's the grand bargain, and, and it's clearly in place in the legal profession. To answer your question, you know, why, have, why has the legal profession failed? Because the legal profession, and it's not just the legal profession, it's across the professions, they're not upholding their side of the bargain. Most people and most organizations cannot afford the services of first-rate professionals or indeed any professionals. You know, the expertise of legal professionals is a very, very scarce resource in society. We've built a Rolls-Royce service for a few, and everyone else seems to be walking. Richard, might you have called this book The uh, Rise of the Computer Overlords? It seems like that was a a major theme of of the book. Uh, I I know that you may not precisely have meant them as overlords, but certainly the computers and the development of artificial intelligence come across as a rather major threat to the professions generally. That's true. Um, There is a threat there. I've been, throughout my career, always struggling to know what to call my books. Uh, I should correct Jim in his introduction. He called my book The End of Lawyers, but he forgot to put the question mark in the end of it. Very much the end of lawyers (laughs) question mark. So I've got got bad form as regards titles of books. No, we called it The Future of the Professions because really that was what we were looking at. And although technology is a, a vital role, we really wanted to focus on human beings and the extent to which these experts, uh, their, their work would be relevant for the future. But there is no question that a central theme of the book is, in our language, the machines are becoming increasingly capable. And what we thought we would do when we looked at the book was think, what is it that human beings do as, as professionals? What expertise do we have? And we thought, well, in the first instance, we have cognitive skills. Uh, this allows us to solve problems, offer advice reason, draw conclusions. Then as human beings, we have secondly, physical skills, psychomotor skills, manual skills, very important for people like dentists and surgeons and so forth. Thirdly, we have emotional skills. We can hopefully listen to and respond to those we advise in in an appropriate way. And fourthly, we have some kind of moral capability. We recognize that the implications of our work are often good or bad, and we take responsibility for the decisions we make and for the advice that we offer. And what we argue in the book, the advent of a whole bundle of different technologies, 
suggests that each of these skills, particularly the cognitive, the manual and the emotional skills, are being taken on on one way or another by these increasingly capable machines. So when you look at cognitive skills, we think of Watson and its ability on, on a TV quiz show to outperform even the best human experts. We think of manual skills and what's going on in robotics. We think of the emerging field of effective computing, computers that can both detect and express human emotions. And we draw the conclusion that many of the tasks that are involved in professional jobs, if not now, then in the future, as our machines become increasingly capable, will be taken on by machines. But one vital question we do ask is this. We're still at the stage where we can essentially draw a line and say there are some tasks that even if machines can take them on, more effectively than us as human beings, we may want to reserve these tasks for human beings. In medicine, we suggest you wouldn't want a machine to be making the decision to switch off a life support system. Or in law, it seemed to us you wouldn't want a machine to be passing a life sentence. And so even if machines are becoming increasingly capable, and we look in great detail at artificial intelligence, the move from what we call first wave AI to second wave AI, but even if these machines are becoming increasingly capable, we, we may want to say enough. We may want to indicate the areas that we think are the exclusive preserve of human beings. Daniel, I fear that a lot of lawyers will take the lesson from this book as doom and gloom from their, for their future, uh, particularly those lawyers who aren't exactly comfortable with technology. Do you have some hope that you can offer them for their future? Yeah. So, so I, think, I, think, I think to read the book as doom and gloom would be to misread it. And, and I, I say this for two reasons. The first reason for hope uh, is that you know, at least in the near future, there's going to be a great deal of work that still has to be done by people. You know, our book isn't about, uh, in the medium term, it isn't about the end of work. It's about how the work that human beings do will change. Um, so these increasingly capable systems take on more and more tasks that were previously done by human beings, but new tasks are created, new roles are created, uh, and there's new things for people to do. And, and our book you know, look, looks at what these what these new roles might be. So, but it is true that in the book, you know, we predict, and it's one of the opening predictions that we make, we predict the decline of the traditional professions and with them the decline of traditional professional roles. But as I said, you know, we also identify a, new, a set of new roles you know, that current professionals and also those outside the professions might perform. And in fact, we, we identify 12 of these new roles and we look at each of them in, in quite, a lot of, quite a lot of depth. Now, of course, if you're of the mindset as a lawyer, that the only way to practice the law is to do so as the law was practiced in the 19th century. The only way to practice the law is as a traditional lawyer. You are going to be disappointed. And the book will read like doom and gloom. But if you're of the mindset that as a lawyer, I want to solve legal problems, and I want to find the most affordable, most accessible ways of solving those legal problems, then this is an incredibly exciting future. And it's a hopeful future. So yes, many of the new roles that we look at for human beings will be unfamiliar to traditional professionals, uh, but the promise of these new roles is that they, they will allow us to make legal expertise far more uh, affordable and far more accessible. So this, this relates to what we think is a, a second reason for hope. Too often in thinking about the future of the professions, we do so from the standpoint of the provider. So in this case, the traditional lawyer. You know, we ask what do these changes mean for traditional lawyers? 
But when you ask about the future of the professions from the standpoint of the recipients of professional work, you know, clients of, of lawyers, it's a, it's a very exciting future. You know, this is a promise of a future where they can get access to legal expertise far more readily and far more affordably. Uh, and that, again, uh, is, uh, as, as we, are, we argue, is, is an exciting reason, uh, is a reason to embrace this future and to be hopeful and to be optimistic. Richard, one of the quotes from your book that I especially um, took to heart is you said, quote, there is no way of softening the blow. Decades from now, today's professions will play a much less prominent role in society. And I think that's the, the gloom and doom standpoint that there is some uncertainties that you express and, and you know, there is charm in, in your own doubts and uncertainties. So I enjoyed that, too. And then you have an entire chapter devoted to objections and anxieties, which I love because I think you're going to have hyper anxiety if you're a professional reading this book. Um, your doubts seem to center not so much around the conclusion, but around the speed with which it will happen, where we go from automation uh, to the, the machines effectively being able to do much of the work in the professions. Is that a fair statement? And how would you comment on that? Well, there's a lot going on in your question there. Um, I think Daniel's absolutely right in what he says, uh, that it's not doom and gloom in the short term. And we want to stress again that uh, what we're seeing is the decline of the professions as we know them. That's to say professionals behaving and undertaking their tasks as they do today. It's not that there won't be work to, do, to be done in the medium term. The, the second thing to say, but we have got a chapter, you're right, called Objections and Anxieties. And I, actually, they're not so much my objections and anxieties or Daniel's. They're the kinds of objections and anxieties that others raise, usually prefaced by, by the phrase, yes, but. When we say, here are the various changes, people will say, <laughs> yes, but. What about X, Y, Z? So we thought it's a kind of preemptive strike. Let's pick out nine of these objections and just lay them out. And um, so, for example, a, a very common one, people will say, Look, the, the whole essence of any professional service is about empathy. It's one human being sitting down with another, empathizing, understanding, sitting in their shoes. So we do a little bit of analysis where we're saying, of course, empathy is important. But we do point out that it, it's true right across the professions that often deeply expert people are not particularly empathetic. And so we often say we shouldn't be expecting more of our machines than we get from our, our human beings. Uh, we also point to the emerging field, as I mentioned a second ago, of, of effective computing, uh, the, the machines that can both uh, recognize and express human emotions. Uh, and so there's a, lot, a great deal of work going on in thinking about whether or not uh, at least the effects of the empathy of human being could in some sense uh, be replicated by, by machines. And we, we focus on the issue of empathy because it it strikes a chord with many people because many people will say uh, at, at the same breath, they'll say, well, of course, what I do as a professional, I'm not just solving problems. I exercise judgment or I'm creative or I'm empathetic and no machine can ever do that, can it? Uh, and we say, well, you're actually asking the wrong question there because the, the, the question is not can a machine exit, exhibit empathy or judgment. Uh, the question we ask is for what problems are empathy and judgment and creativity the solution? Uh, 
And when you take something like judgment, because every lawyer wants to say, and I, with some justification, that we exercise judgment in our, in our daily activities, it transpires on analysis that the reason we call upon experts to exercise judgment is because, as human beings, we operate under conditions of uncertainty. We don't know precisely what's going on around us. We don't know the, the knowledge that should apply to our particular circumstances. So we call upon experts to exercise their judgment. But if you think about this for a second, the solution for which human judgment, or the problem for which human judgment is a solution, is this uncertainty. And it turns out, of course, that computers are wonderful at dealing with uncertainty. And one clear example of this that I know is of interest to both of you is the whole question of big data. If we have vast databases of past experience of courts, for example, then we can actually eliminate a lot of the uncertainty, um, or machines can cope with this uncertainty on the basis of large bodies of data and brute force. And so it may well be that we solve problems differently in the future. This is one of our running themes, that uh, problems for which professionals have been the answer in the past uh, may now, in the future, be sorted out by these increasingly capable machines. But you are right, thirdly, to say that we're uncertain about the timescales in this. And uh, I, I've generally been reluctant over the decades in my work to be pinned down to when the changes will occur. Uh, it's not really in the hands of an author or a consultant, uh, a father and son, to change the professions. That's not our job. What we're doing is identifying a whole bundle of trends. We believe machines are becoming increasingly capable. We believe human beings are becoming increasingly connected. We become, and we believe our, the devices we use are becoming increasingly pervasive. Whether or not that will mean by 2030, 2040, or 2050 that much of the work of, say, the everyday lawyer will be eliminated, we, we can't predict. Uh, but it does seem to us that the least likely future is that nothing is going to change. We see no plateauing. We see no leveling out uh, in, the, in the power and potential of information technology. So you're right. We're uncertain about timescales. But we do believe and we, we, that the, the decade, the, the 2020s, is going to be a decade where many professional roles a phrase we often use, it's not going to be about unemployment, it's about redeployment. So we see the 2020s as a decade of redeployment. Beyond that, we can point to the broad trends, but we're uncomfortable about being pinned down to any specific dates. Daniel, can you explain the concept of embedded knowledge and how it pertains to the legal profession? So when most people think of how we apply expertise to resolving everyday problems, we tend to assume that human beings, and in traditional human, uh, and in particular a human professional, uh, needs to be involved. So, if, if there's a medical issue, a legal issue, a tax issue to be sorted, then necessarily we expect that we require a flesh and blood uh, advisor. Now, the existence of what we call in the book embedded knowledge challenges this assumption. It involves the application of knowledge. And it doesn't directly involve human beings. So a, a good example of this is the game, the game of solitaire, card game, uh, also known as patience. One of the rules of that game is that you can't put two cards of the same color on top of each other. Now, if you're playing that game with a real deck of cards, of course, you can cheat. You, know, you could put a red nine on top of a red eight. But when you play that game on your computer, it is not possible to lay a red nine on a red eight. You know, the system will not let you do it. There are rules of the game built into the electronic version of the card game that don't allow you to, 
to break the rules. And in the professions, across the professions, we see you know, a similar thing happening with embedded knowledge. So in medicine, for example, uh, there's insulin pumps, uh, and they are moving towards automated dosing that's based on sensor input rather than the deliberation of a medical expert. It's not possible to not get the dose right given some sensor input. There's no, there's no way of breaking the rules that are represented in the, in the technology. Similarly, in the world of religion, you know, smartphones are being reprogrammed to have limited web browsing capabilities so that, you know, for example, observant Jews don't have to worry about visiting non-kosher websites. It's just simply not possible to do it. And so in the legal world, when legal rules are embodied in working practices and systems and processes, uh, non-compliance becomes far more difficult. So you can imagine in a building, you might have environmental legislation that dictates whether or not, or dictates what temperature has to be, what humidity must be. Uh, and you can design systems in the building such that compliance with that environmental legislation must happen. Now, in the financial world, you can imagine financial regulation that dictates what trades are are acceptable and are not acceptable. And similarly, you can imagine in a bank, systems can be designed to ensure that those trades that are not acceptable uh, can't be carried out, you know, to ensure that non-compliance is not an option. It's worth saying though, that this, this idea of embedded knowledge, we, we call it, in fact, the embedded knowledge model. And it's only one of six alternative ways of producing and sharing expertise in society uh, that we set out in the book. So alongside this embedded knowledge model, we look at five other ways of producing and sharing expertise. All, all the more reason for them to buy the book. But for the moment, let's pause for a commercial break and then we'll be right back. In recent years, the legal sector has come under increasing pressure to improve efficiency and client services. CloudMask enables law firms and solo attorneys to leverage free and low-cost software as a service, such as Google Apps and Office 365, to improve efficiency and client service while reducing cost, strengthening compliance with data privacy laws, and ensuring that legal ethical duties are met. Cloud Mask Encryption is even certified by 26 governments around the world. Sign up now for your 60-day free account at cloudmask.com. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the country. Connect your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit servenow.com. Welcome back to the Digital Edge on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our subject is The Future of the Professions, an interview with Richard and Daniel Suskin. And our guests are Richard and Daniel Suskin, the authors of the new book, The Future of the Professions. Richard, I especially like the concept of the commons, the free sharing of information, which already has had a huge and ever-growing impact on lawyers. Would you expand on what you see happening to the legal profession based on this free sharing of information? The context of this concept is online legal service, this idea that 
human beings will receive legal guidance, get legal help, be able to draft legal documents by consulting online services. And in the book, we suggest there's three different ways that this could be made available. On the one hand, it could be made available as a kind of chargeable online service. And we're already seeing law firms around the world who are moving in this direction. So people who use these services pay for use. A second model favored by many governments and charitable organizations is that the content's made available at no cost to the users, but the content is controlled very much by these governmental and charitable bodies. And the third option is when legal content, legal advice, legal documents, legal experience is made available on a commons basis. And if this is a huge oversimplification, but it's like a a Wikipedia of practical expertise. And this is where people not only can get advice and guidance, but can actually share the experience they've had of receiving legal advice with others. And the key characteristics of this is it's not owned and controlled by a government or by a major commercial provider. It's actually held and stored and shared and nurtured on behalf of the people as a form of common property. So you don't enclose this knowledge or expertise. You don't control it externally in the spirit. And of course, this has been so dominant in the software engineering industry, in the spirit of the open source community, where code and systems and services are are shared, then we believe the same should be happening with professional content. And in the end of the book, when we ask the question, what future should we want? We find this very attractive. We think the idea that people around the world could have ready, immediate, no or low cost access to medical help, to educational services, and in our context, to legal advice, this is something we should aspire to. It's a very different future. It takes away from the idea of lawyers being the gatekeepers. Lawyers as the gatekeepers would be the people who own and control the online legal services. If you take away the gate, as it were, if you make legal content available on a commons basis, There is, on the face of it, less legal business for lawyers, but from the point of view of the recipients of legal advice, ordinary citizens, small businesses, and so forth, this is a huge move ahead in society in our view. Daniel, lawyers are trained to look at the past, precedent to uh, guess and predict the future. Your book correctly points out the tendency of many in the legal profession and others, I assume, to make small incremental changes when you say a complete change of mindset is needed. What does that mean exactly? So, so what we mean by that is that in, in thinking about the future of the professions, most professionals tend to take what they do today. So in the law, some form of one-to-one consultative advisory service, often it's on an hourly billing basis. Uh, and they ask, you know, how can we make that service a bit quicker, a bit cheaper, a bit better? But rarely... Do professionals ask themselves a more fundamental question? To what problem are the current prefer, uh, are the current professions the solution? Yeah, and in the in the legal case, you know, to what problem is the legal profession the current solution? And when and when we look at this from the the standpoint of all the professions, you know, our answer to this more fundamental question is that all the professions, in analogous ways, are a solution to the same problem. And the problem is that none of us has sufficient specialist knowledge to cope with all our daily challenges in life. Nobody can know everything. Human beings have what uh, we write and call in the book, limited understanding. And so we look to doctors, we look to teachers, and we look to lawyers and other professionals because they have the expertise that we need to make progress in life. So the professions are the traditional way that we solve 
uh, these daily challenges. Professionals have knowledge, they have experience, skills, and know-how that those they help don't. So why, why does this change in mindset matter? Why is the shift away from thinking about the current professions to thinking about the problems to which the current professions are the solution? Why is that, why is that a useful one? And the answer is this, because it helps us to recognize that there might be quite different solutions to the problem. They're ones that are entirely unlike what we have put in place, namely the traditional professions. It encourages us to look beyond the traditional professions and open our minds and, and recognize that there might be an alternative. You know, there might be better ways of resolving the underlying problem. And, and this is, in fact, what, what the book is arguing. You know, we're arguing that there's, there is one future where we use technology to make, the, make current professional service a bit quicker, a bit cheaper, a bit better. But there's a second very different future where we use technology to solve these problems in fundamentally different ways. And, and that's, what we're, that's what we're talking about when we talk about a, a shift in mindset. Well, Richard, your, your book offers up a, a revolution that you say will result in a dismantling of the traditional professions. Are you really convinced that that will be the re result? And the reason I ask is because the professions have been failing the grand bargain for a very long time and they have survived. It's funny, this is uh, the most frequent criticism of our book. People say we don't understand the professions have been around for centuries. They're, they're not going away quickly. And indeed, it will require the willingness of the professions themselves to bring about the change. Well, we see a number of things are, that are happening. We did a lot of empirical research in, in preparation for the book. We looked at thought leaders and market leaders around the world who really are already changing the professions. And we also looked at the commercial circumstances and the social circumstances of the current professions. As Daniel said, they're, they're creaking. We can't really afford our medical services, our legal services, our educational services any longer. So we concluded that we are at a bit of a crossroads, and this is unprecedented, because what we're seeing is what I've called for many years in the legal context, the more for less challenge uh, from ordinary citizens right through to major corporations, a need radically to reduce the cost of legal services. We're seeing in many professions a liberalization. Uh, this is the opportunity for people who are not traditional providers to come into the marketplace and offer technology-based solutions that supplant, replace, challenge conventional uh, ways of working. And we see an appetite, particularly amongst the internet generation, for work to be done differently. And we don't see this dismantling is going to happen overnight. We call it an incremental transformation. It's not a big bang revolution. And we're not saying the professionals will be dead within the next few years. But I think if you look over the next few decades, and if we're right, and that increasingly capable machines take on many more of the tasks, more and more of the tasks that human beings currently undertake. And if you bear in mind that most people cannot any longer afford legal services delivered in the traditional way. And I, I look, for example, locally, the success we've had in promoting online dispute resolution. I look at the growing interest in online legal help for consumers. We see all of these drivers pointing in the same direction, away from one-to-one -one consultative advisory service that underpins the current professions, towards some kind of online delivery of legal services, often on a commons basis, and often with not the direct involvement of the traditional legal professional. So we're not saying for a second there'll be less need for legal help. Actually, as our economies grow, there's more need for legal help. But what we're saying is, as legal service becomes less and less affordable, commercially and societally, socially and morally, it seems to us we're impelled to find new and 
ways of delivering services. And while in the past these have been occasional changes at the edge, what we foresee is that these changes will actually become center screen, and that these transformations will characterize the way in which problems are sorted out rather than be exceptional. And dismantling of the professions may sound rather melodramatic. I stress again, it's not over the next few years, it's over the next few decades. But we looked at crafts in the past. We looked at the tallow chandlers. We looked at the mercers. We looked at the wheelwrights, people who were involved in, in manufacturing of candles, of, uh, of silk and of wheels. We still need candles. We still need silk. We still need wheels. But these ways of working, these antiquated ways of working based on craft were displaced by modern technology. We see the same in the professions. The antiquated dependency on professions as a craft will be displaced by, in large part, either by increasingly capable machines working autonomously or by less expert people performing at a high level with the support of systems. So we don't make any apologies for our prediction that in the next few decades, the professions as we know them will fade and we'll find new ways of sorting out the problems to which they currently are the solution. Daniel, what's the most interesting question that people have asked you about the legal profession and your predictions after they've read the book? Could you tell us the question, answer it, and also tell our listeners where they can pick up a copy of the book? Of course. Well, I I think the most interesting question that I get asked about the future of the legal profession, and in fact, the future of all the professions, the question about the very long run. So a lot of the book is looking at the medium run and looking at the new roles for people that people will do, that legal professionals will do. But a lot of people also, as I said, want to know about the very long run. You know, they read about the ongoing debate about the future of work, and, and the question they ask is, you know, but surely there must be some tasks that machines can't do. And our answer to that question is not to be so sure about it. And what, and what we say in thinking that there are some tasks that machines can never do, even in the long run, you know, legal professionals tend to have what we call a Rubik's Cube conception of uh, machine capability. So there is a, and the reason it's called Rubik's Cube conception is there's a, there's a machine that was built by a man out of combination of Lego and his smartphone uh, that could solve a Rubik's Cube in under three and a half seconds. And he built this in his, in his dining room table. You know, that three and a half seconds is significantly better than the leading human expert. And most legal professionals aren't surprised by this capability of machines. You know, although the task of solving a Rubik's Cube is a complex one, it's manually dexterous, uh, it's also self-contained. It's a rules-based problem. It's logical. It's what legal professionals might call a routine task. And so, of course, machines can do this. And what, and what many legal professionals say is that you know, they do much more than carry out routine work. You know, legal professionals say that their work requires creativity, requires judgment, requires empathy. And all of these sorts of tasks are surely non-routine tasks and therefore beyond the capability of machines. And it's usually at this point in the conversation that you know, a lawyer's shoulders relax and they think, you know, that's me, I'm safe in the very long run. And, and as I said at the start, you know, our response to this is not to, you know, to not be so sure. 
And we, we think there's two mistakes being made here. The first relates to the decomposition of work. You know, our research and our experience suggests that when you break legal work down into its more basic tasks, it turns out that many of these legal tasks are routine rather than non-routine. You know, not everything, and in cases not very much, that a lawyer does requires empathy, creativity, and judgment. Um, and the second, the second mistake that's being made, we think, when uh, lawyers say, you know, surely there must be some things in the future that can never be done by a machine, uh, is to think that these non-routine tasks, you know, those that require creativity, judgment, and empathy, uh, can never be handled by machines either. Uh, and this, this relates to an idea that we spend quite a lot of time looking at in the book called the artificial intelligence fallacy. And very, very briefly, it's the mistaken belief, it's a fallacy, uh, that the only way to get a machine to replicate, to perform a task that uh, a lawyer currently performs is to try and understand how a lawyer performs it and then articulate how a lawyer performs it in a set of rules for a machine to follow. You know, that's simply not true. You know, the temptation is to say that because computers can't think, they can't be creative. Because computers can't feel, they can't be empathetic. And the mistake is the artificial intelligence fallacy is to fail to notice that many of these new systems and machines can perform the sort of tasks that lawyers performed but not by copying the way that human beings do them with creativity, with judgment, with empathy, but doing them in very, very different ways. A good example of this, last year on eBay, uh, 60 million legal disputes arised and were resolved online using uh, what's called a, a, an e-mediation platform. No traditional lawyers were involved, and, and the way the system resolved the legal problems looked nothing like the way that a traditional lawyer would resolve it. It didn't require creativity, judgment, and empathy. It was doing it in a very, very different way. Uh, and when we see this across the professions, uh, these, these systems and machines are able to perform tasks not by copying the way that a doctor or a teacher or an architect performs them, uh, but, but as I said, doing them, doing them in a very different way. As, as to your latter question about where the, where the book is available, uh, it's, it's currently available uh, in online bookstores uh, on Amazon. Uh, and over the first few weeks of the new year, it should start uh, appearing in most major bookstores as well. Well, we'd like to thank you both for being our guests today, Richard and Daniel. It's a, it's a wonderful book. I personally recommend buying it not as an ebook, but in, as an actual book. Uh, because I found myself highlighting a lot and making notes, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's full of engaging ideas. You may not agree with all of them, but they are definitely uh, presented in a very entertaining way. Both of you are very witty fellows. Uh, and so I was one of the two readers that uh, that ventured into one of your chapters that you said you could skip, but I didn't skip it. Uh, there are a lot of interesting tips topics, ideas for you, and many anecdotes that would be fun to share over a couple of pints at the local pub, which is what Jim and I wish we could do with you two. Uh, but we are denied that privilege, so we'll just stop and, and say thank you very much for being with us today. I know the audiences are going to get a, a lot out of this. Sharon and Jim, thank you very much for involving us. It's been a great pleasure. It really has. Thank you. That does it for this edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye, Miss Sharon. Happy trails, cowboy. Thanks for listening to The Digital Edge. 
produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join Sharon Nelson and Jim Calloway for their next podcast covering the latest topic related to lawyers and technology. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.